0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 15th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley, I like to be on the edge because you can look over the edge. I don't really want to be in it, but it's an interesting place to look at. We've done a lot of looking these days on the show. Yesterday, um, we had uh, John Alexander, an interesting uh, political activist on the show. He has a new book out called Citizens, which argues to make ourselves happy, to fix everything, to solve the world, we need to transform ourselves from consumers into citizens. He doesn't think that there's anything compatible between citizenship and consumption and that what's gone wrong in the world is we've been transformed by marketing gurus throughout the 20th century into consumers. Um, Last week, I also had the UC Berkeley sociologist Carolyn Chen on the show. She has a really interesting new book called Work, Prey Code, which suggests that The typical Silicon Valley company is being um, transformed, in a sense, into a church. Um, There's so much spiritual emptiness, Chen believes, in America today, that the firm, the company, particularly the tech company, but not just tech companies, um, are being transformed into churches and work itself is replacing religion or faith as the center of our lives. Of course, not everyone's a great fan of that. Um, we've had so many tech critics on the, pho- uh, on, on the show recently. Ari Waldman, for example, a few days ago, uh, talked about how big tech represents an existential threat to our privacy and liberty. Waldman is certainly not the first or the last person to argue that. Uh, It's probably a little bit too pat, simple a critique these days. Certainly, there is a, a crisis of trust and inspiration. We had the business writer Stephen R. M. R. Covey on the show also late last week, arguing how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. And of course, that's the challenge of all leadership, particularly tech leaders, unleashing greatness in others. That may have been the goal, and in some ways, the achievement of of one of uh, Big Tech's most celebrated and legendary figures, a man called Tony Su. Uh, He was the founder of a company called Zappos, which sold for many millions to Amazon, as well as an inspirational, visionary, and controversial figure. Uh, He died tragically in November 2020, and we have a new book out about um, Tony Sue, called Happy at Any Cost. Uh, of course, that refers to Sue's uh, best-selling book about himself and his beliefs. Uh, one of the co-authors of the book, Catherine Sayer, uh, who also works for the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, is uh, on the show today. She's talking to us from the uh, the Journal uh, Bureau in Los Angeles. Um, Catherine? tony sue uh he's complicated isn't he he's neither a saint nor a villain and that's why he's so hard to categorize
1: absolutely that's a challenge that we faced throughout writing this reporting and writing this book you know my colleague kirsten grind and i we we got started when as you mentioned tony uh died tragically in november and the circumstances were really mysterious you know he was in a fire in a shed uh, thousands of miles away from his home in Las Vegas in Connecticut at three in the morning. Um, and, you know, his his death was so dark at, at such a young age, only 46. And, you know, I knew Tony, as many people did, as a happiness guru, someone who had attained this status in tech culture of um having the, the the key to happiness and constantly seeking happiness. And he really, you know, inspired so many other people. So that contrast was so stark. And we set out to find out exactly what led Tony from happiness to this sad end.
0: Catherine, uh, I didn't know Tony, although I, know, I knew a lot of people who did know him. It, I have to admit that none of this surprises me. Anyone who pedals or articulates or messages the idea of happiness, I've always assumed would be by definition deeply unhappy. Is that a, a rather simplistic way of you think thinking about this this cult of happiness that that, that uh, Sue seemed to pedal?
1: You know, I don't think it's too simplistic. I think you know I did a lot of research around happiness and positive psychology for this book. And there's certainly a darker side to it, right? The search for happiness, setting up expectations that you're only to be disappointed by, for example. Um, You know, on the other hand, though, Tony Shea stands out to me as someone who was so genuine in this quest and so uh, generous to people around him, whether that was time or money. He really did try to spread joy through, you know, parties in the office, uh, investing in other people's ideas. So, um, you know, I, I, it was a genuine um, goal for him, I will say.
0: We had um, last year, I'm sure you know, I think she might even be a colleague of yours at the Journal, Maureen uh, Farrell, co author of a book about WeWork, Adam Newman, uh, The Cult of We, which exposed Newman as a fraud. Uh, for you, I'm assuming that um, Sue isn't a fraud. Um, that he actually believed in what he was saying and to some extent was successful in making other people, although not himself, happy. Is that fair?
1: I think that's fair. I mean, um, Tony Shea, when he became CEO of Zappos, he immediately got to work on corporate culture. You know, Zappos, online shoe retailer, an early uh, adopter of online retail, but he didn't care about shoes, right? He was all about... Zappos as his place for culture experiments. and so he embraced weirdness and fun in the office. He was they explicitly said they're hiring only happy people, which raises its own questions about yeah, you know, it, To
0: me <laughs> I, I'm as you can tell, I'm a fairly miserable person and I get great pleasure out of that. so that's my brand. but you know there's something reading your book and thinking about this reminds me a little bit of Kafka. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, there's a scene at the end of your book where, to celebrate Tony's life, um, there was a celebration outside the mantis. Um, Las Vegas' is uh, very own, I'm quoting from uh, a web page, very own 40-foot tall fire-spewing praying mantis. It reminds me of some of uh, Kafka's most... Um, Chilling uh, work in in the metamorphosis. Is there something really dark though when you you get to the core? If you did indeed get to the core of Sue and this cult of of happiness,
1: you know the core is he had underlying mental health and drug addiction issues that he never addressed. You know he was a person of many contradictions. So at the same time that he could never be alone. Uh, he was also intensely private. So, you know, he didn't even live in his Las Vegas mansion. He chose to live in an Airstream trailer park crammed with other people in downtown Vegas. You know, he, he couldn't be alone. Um, and yet he couldn't share. And so there was that, um, you know, darker side of him that because it was never addressed. It's not was- a
0: so- I mean, to be fair, Catherine, it's not a side of him. That was his core. You bring up at the end. Um, the psychological uh, travails of uh, celebrities like uh, Noemi Osaka and Simone Biles. Is there something about figures like Biles and Osaka and, and Tony Sue that somehow capture the psychological crisis of our age that tells us more about ourselves rather than just Tony? Well, I
1: you know. I interviewed a historian who wrote a book about happiness, Dan Horowitz, and he talked about how, you know, the search for happiness has created a world of serial searchers who can never be satisfied. And that's what I would, you know, point to in terms of the problem of our time. I can't speak to uh, Simone or Naomi on that front, but I know Tony. You do
0: write about them in the book or you touch about uh, you you touch on them and their condition and you compare it to, to Tony's.
1: Right. But, you know, Tony's search just, I mean, went quite astray, right? He went from happiness in the workplace to spreading happiness all around Las Vegas to, by the end, he decided he could solve world peace. And I know that that sounds absurd, but that's what his stated purpose was. It's
0: tragically absurd. Uh, Let's go back to, I, I began this conversation talking about John Alexander, suggesting that the problem with the contemporary world is one in which we think of ourselves as consumers. What's interesting about Tony is that he created a kind of cult of the consumer. You can look all over the web at stuff about, for example, Zappos' customer service wows customers to win. It's selling shoes, which are the most mundane of things. Isn't there something by definition absurd and sad about creating a a cult of happiness around a retail online shoe business?
1: I don't know that I would characterize it that way. I mean, he, it, for a time, this uh, approach to Zappos was really successful, right? Because by t- two thousand. I'm not saying it's. Uh,
0: sorry to interrupt. I get into trouble, uh, Catherine, for interrupting, but I'm not saying it's not successful. It's a very clever business strategy. It Made him a lot of money and a lot of success, but it's still spiritually very depressing and and, and almost inevitably bound for a catastrophic end like Tony's.
1: Well, I think, you know, Tony's struggles were a lot about, you know, his, like I said, his untreated mental health and and drug addiction. And, and, you know, those have solutions, treatment uh, solutions, but, you know, he just set up this world around him of enablers and this entourage and just walled himself off from the world. So, I mean, he just, you know, he didn't have to die then this way.
0: No, of course, and I, I'm not suggesting that. Um, we are talking with uh, Catherine Sayer, the co-author of Happiness at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Hsu. Um Catherine, uh, perhaps you might, we've sort of jumped in at the deep end here, maybe begin a little bit more simply. Tell me the story of, uh, Tony Sue. It's quite an unusual story from fairly modest beginnings to a Harvard undergraduate to a, a, a successful career as a, a, a serial uh, entrepreneur. Very briefly, go over Sue's story.
1: Yeah. So he grew up in the Bay Area. Um, you know, he was a creative business minded kid coming up with startup ideas, you know, when he was just just a young kid. Um, But was under a lot of pressure. You know, his his parents were immigrants from uh, Taiwan, and he often said that they were your typical Asian American parents who demanded a lot. Um, So I think that was also kind of what led to some of his search for happiness and joy is that, you know, his upbringing was pretty strict. But as you said, he he gets into Harvard just like his uh, parents uh, wanted and eventually moved into the startup world and launched link exchange, which was an early, you know, online advertisement business, sold that to Microsoft for $265 million. So you know, he's a- among these um, newly minted multimillionaires and starts a venture capital fund called venture frogs. And he got a call one day from a man named Nick Swinmurn and said, Hey, I've got this idea. I want to, I want to sell shoes online. And Tony had to be convinced, but that's how Zappos got started, and eventually he took over as CEO. And so, you know, that's just the beginning. I mean, he created a a cult status through his time at Zappos uh, with these uh, core uh, culture goals around happiness and the book. So, for example, Zappos' headquarters in Las Vegas Thousands of people would fly to Las Vegas to tour these offices and meet Tony. They offered classes that an entrepreneur could take for, you know, like a thousand dollars to learn all about uh, instilling their own culture of happiness at their companies. And so he just built this this um, unbelievable uh, influence um, by the time the pandemic uh, came around, which is when things went pretty wrong for him.
0: Was he a a, a a classical charismatic? Did people fall in love with him as soon as they met him? He just had this remarkable energy and enthusiasm, uh, which 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 people found um, intoxicating. Would that be one way of describing him?
1: That's a really good question. I would say yes, in his own unique way, because um, he was an introvert in one way. You know, he wanted to be around people all the time, but didn't share a lot of his own um personal details but he um definitely had this magnetism i mean people flocked to him because he had such an optimistic message and like i said you know he he invested time and money into people around him so people really loved him he
0: had yeah 100%. when i was preparing for this um i was watching a, a- a very popular YouTube uh, speech. He made well. It's a Google speech on YouTube. Of course, own uh, YouTube. Which uh, was, was introduced by the official jolly good fellow of Google. And this guy introduced uh, Tony as a better jolly good fellow. He was a a very jolly good fellow, wasn't he? At least um, in public.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he loved to party whether it was parties at the airstream trailer park um after work and actually I shouldn't even say after work tony tony said he doesn't he wasn't into work life balance he was into work life integration so work is life he didn't he didn't make that distinction but you know he asked his managers to spend 10 to 20% of their time with their employees outside of the office happy hours parties he spent millions on these elaborate all hands meetings with you know, dancers and performers. He and he was a a, a, a lover of Burning Man. I mean, he. Liked yeah, he to have is fun. Mr.
0: He was Mr. Burning Man. You know, if uh, if Catherine uh, Caroline Chen, if we combine Caroline Chen's book um, with your book, um, uh, Happy at Any Cost, perhaps uh, we might retitle it work pray party code partying was was almost like a religion wasn't it for the for, for the zappos crowd for tony for the burning man ethic
1: absolutely i mean they you know and and it had the effect of masking you know a lifelong you know alcohol addiction that you know people just kind of glossed over because they were all drinking with him at Zappos, at Zappos parties around Vegas. And that's really the root of some later drug addictions that um, got really unmanageable for him. So, I mean, that partying life, uh, you know, masked a lot of deep, deep, sad problems he was having.
0: Your book's making some news. Um, One of the the headlines I, I found online is that you suggest that the the star jewel tried to save uh, Tony Sue from mental decline. He certainly, you know, he he he, he was a a celebrity, a, a plus celebrity, mixed with the the Clintons and the Bezoses of the world. Didn't he have a girlfriend? Couldn't he find joy in 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 a more conventional emotional relationship?
1: Um. You know, he had decided at some point that the traditional um, married life was not for him. He was polyamorous. He had, you know, girlfriends who became friends, friends who became girlfriends um, without, you know, with a few exceptions. But for the most part, he he did not have a, you know, long term committed relationship.
0: It's particularly ironic that he, he made millions selling um uh selling zappos to amazon of course run by jeff bezos he is the anti-bezos isn't he for better or worse bezos seems so sane so self-interested so successful uh so unpleasant whereas sony uh tony not sony's tony is, is, is is has nothing in common with bezos but they must have spent quite a lot of time together
1: they spent some time together and in fact you know uh Jeff and Tony, they did connect over this idea of of corporate culture uh, when that acquisition was happening. And, you know, Jeff said, okay, Tony, we're gonna buy you guys, but you get full authority. We're not going to interfere with you, but you're right. Amazon eventually got a little tired of all of his management experiments. And they said, you know, around 2019, they said, you've really got to start hitting some performance goals that are about making money. Uh, and that put a lot of pressure on Tony. He didn't like that.
0: I can imagine. We're talking with Catherine Sayer, the co-author of a, an, an intriguing new book, Happy at Any Cost, the biography of Tony Sue. It's intriguing because it doesn't fall into the classic hagiographical category of idolizing tech founders, and on the other hand, these new books which tend to vilify them. It's a a balanced, complicated attempt to make sense of a, a very complicated man. I'm going to take a break, Catherine. Um, and uh, uh, after the break, I want to talk to you about some of Tony's bigger ideas, particularly his idea of holocracy and how that could work. So we'll take a 60-second break and then we'll come back with Catherine Sayer, the co-author of Happy at Any Cost. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify, or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub Hub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Catherine Sayer, the co-author of Happy at Any Cost, the biography of Tony Say. Uh, Catherine, am I pronouncing it right? I'm, I keep on, uh, Shea, Shea, whoops. Tony Shea will be turning in his grave, poor old Tony, because I mispronounced his name, Tony Shea, the, uh, the famous founder of Zappos and many other successful, um, technology, uh, startups. Uh, Catherine, as I said, uh, Jewel was a big fan, and, and, and the media loved him. Uh, the media loved him because they saw him as a utopian. Uh, Slate reported uh, in 2013 about how he was trying to turn Las Vegas into a utopia. Um, and uh, WBUR, of all networks, believe that uh, Tony Say's downtown Las Vegas was a utopia. This all brought to mind um, conversation I had a few weeks ago with the Indian American writer Akash Kapoor about his experience of growing up in um, in Auroraville in India, uh, a, a utopian community that his his best selling book Better to Have Gone is a wonderful account of that. Do you see Tony as a utopian, Catherine? Is that a fair way to describe him or is it, again, too simplistic? And was he indeed trying to turn Las Vegas of all places into a utopia?
1: I think that that's a fair way to characterize him. And, you know, the downtown project is what you're referring to. You know, in 2012, he said he would put $350 million of his own money Uh, into building up this neglected part of of the town, you know, through tech businesses, arts businesses, uh, real estate with retail and restaurants and really try to revive this area. And he had utopia in mind. Uh, And during the pandemic, when he went to Park City, that was his next goal, was to create a utopia there that would create world peace. I think, you know, one thing he struggled with Um, was commitment. I mean, things didn't go exactly as planned at the Downtown Project. Uh, Things didn't go exactly as planned with some experiments uh, in Zappos. And I think going back to the idea of him being a serial searcher, you know, he just moved on and wanted to build another utopia in Park City instead.
0: I mean, what kind of a uh, utopia was he trying to build in Park City? And how could you build anything in Park City that would lead to a world peace? What was the idea?
1: Well, a lot of this starts to not make a whole lot of sense, right? Because he's his mental health is in severe decline. His physical health is in severe decline from drugs. So you have to put it in that context. But uh, in Park City, he had this idea that he would bring together thinkers, philosophers, artists, who would he would invest in and somehow through this creativity would create world peace.
0: It's unconvincing. And, and it's clear to me that you're not particularly convinced. One word that I've always associated with Tony is this notion of holocracy. Uh, it was something that I'm not sure if he personally promoted, but it was certainly associated with Zappos, re-architecting corporations so that they existed without a center in an odd, eerie, existential kind of way. I guess that reflected his own mental state. Um, uh, org. today, you can evolve your organization into a complex organic system, whatever that means. Was he an hol- uh, a holocrat, uh, Catherine? Is that Perhaps his most lasting intellectual legacy to utopian thinking on holacracy on and in his attempt to turn Zappos in some ways into a holocracy
1: you know it was part of his it's part of his legacy, but it's also one of his bigger failures um and whether you would uh, ascribe that to Tony or just holocracy as a system itself, I'm not sure, but he was. He's the one who discovered Holacracy at a conference. He, you know, talked. What is founders. it? Maybe you can yeah. define it yes. because not How everyone
0: will know what that even means.
1: I didn't know what it meant when I started this book. So it's a system of self-management that essentially does away with bosses. And instead uh, the company becomes this almost a cellular being with um, circles working on projects and people fill roles within circles and there are processes for getting things done. Um, And if there's a problem, problems are called tensions. So you see where I'm going with this. I mean, it's supposed to be self management sounds efficient, but it ended up being really process heavy and really meeting heavy and frustrating a lot of people.
0: In a funny kind of way, it, It predicts Web3 and its idea of a distributed autonomous organizations, um, uh, 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 networks, and corporations without a center. His was intellectual. Uh, Web3 is, of course, technological. Was he a big fan of crypto? And in some ways, do you see him as a pioneer of the Web3 idea?
1: You know, I... I did not hear about whether he was into um, crypto specifically, but I can see where you're headed in, in kind of putting him within that, that legacy. Um, he, yeah.
0: Do you think, I mean, I assume he invested in crypto, he invested in most stuff and he must have, he must have got pitched a lot of crypto ideas.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, For sure. He got pitched many ideas and ended up investing in a lot of them.
0: (laughs) He's a smart guy. I mean, he was a smart guy. went to Harvard. Did he have any political sensibility? I mean, what would he have made of the kind of argument of somebody like John Alexander that we've simply got to stop being uh, consumers and become citizens? Politics is the answer. Consumption is the problem. What would he have made of that argument?
1: I think in the latter years of his life, he would at least say he agreed with that, Uh, you know, he, you know, symbolically, he decided to stop wearing shoes, he didn't care about shoes anymore, he didn't care about consumption, he was after these loftier goals. And so, you know, again, though, that, you know, it relates to he had some serious mental health struggles that, you know, clouded all of that.
0: What did he think of the generation of the Silicon Valley ideal? Now we Our screens are now full of um, dystopian narratives of Travis Kalalnik at Uber, um, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, Newman at WeWorks. Did he acknowledge that the Silicon Valley ideal, which he kind of represented as a startup entrepreneur, as someone who sold his startup for several hundred million dollars, would have he acknowledged that there's something gone seriously wrong with startup tech?
1: I think he would have most certainly. I mean, that's, that's why he was on this search for something bigger, something deeper. Um, Yeah. I think, I think that he would have acknowledged it. I don't know how um, much time he would have spent really, you know, exploring it before he was off to his next idea.
0: Catherine, you're talking to me from Los Angeles, heart of Hollywood times notes that hollywood big bets big on the bigger uh, on the bad entrepreneur the, the the you know the fictional versions of holmes and Do you think they're making a mistake or we collectively are making a mistake in vilifying these tech entrepreneurs in such a a dark way um it seems to me if uh uh, uh tony's life was hollywood like but in a tragic way Uh, for example at the end of his I think after his life some of his family used some of Britney Spears father's lawyers so even after his life there was a kind of tragic absurd quality to it is there something Hollywood like about this narrative that perhaps Hollywood needs to bear in mind as it represents Silicon Valley and figures like Tony Um,
1: I mean his life certainly had the highs and the lows of a of a hollywood story i don't you know i i I don't see room to you know vilify tony i'm not saying you're saying that but like i i I wouldn't put him in the same category as an adam newman or an elizabeth no no that's
0: my point is that that we can't i mean it would that's too easy either we we did it with zuckerberg we've done it both ways with zuckerberg The social con uh, the the social contract movie heroized him and now he's the sort of most satanic figure in our culture but we've got to we've got to realize a more balanced view and take on these people because they're so important i mean they're not marginal characters whether it's tony or zuckerberg or kalalnik these people are reshaping our world
1: They are. And I have to believe that Tony would have continued to have a very positive impact on the world if he had addressed, you know, his inner problems. If he had taken a moment to, as Jewel warned him before his death, she said, get grounded, you know, take a moment. And I think that if he had gotten grounded, um, I mean, his his life started off, so, with like I said, so, such a genuine search for happiness for others that I think he could have accomplished a lot more if he had addressed his mental
0: health. Finally, uh, Catherine, is there a particular anecdote you think that captures Tony's life, a story that really reveals, I think, the sadness of his life more than anything else?
1: Um, you know, I think, I, I think to when he was getting set up in Park City and in, in, during the pandemic, right, you know, everything was on lockdown, his oldest friends and family are, you know, uh, uh, sheltering far away from him and he just cannot be alone. And so he starts making calls. Who has he, who, what acquaintances friends as he met along the way who are free enough to just come live with him in Park City and he was offering them hey what did you make last year in salary I'll double your salary if you'll just come live in Park City and you know I that that loneliness to the point of you know making him so vulnerable to people who use him that's um one of the the, the sadder moments that that I think about
0: yeah he was on a Quest for something. I had the Australian writer Wendy Seaford on the show. She has a fascinating new book out, The Sunny Nihilist, The Declaration of the Pleasure of Pointlessness. Uh, Tony might have read that. He was looking for something and he never found it, did he?
1: He didn't. I don't know if he could have defined exactly what he was looking for. Uh, you know, just a side note, I mean, one of the odd things i ended up researching for this book was the history of the use of nitrous oxide you know the gas we know as whippets kind of seems like a silly uh party drug but for him it was giving him these experiences that he felt were getting him closer to these big life answers but the high would wear off and he didn't really know what the answers were anymore
0: rosebud maybe uh certainly uh This is a a perpetual theme in American culture and history. Catherine Sayer, the co-author of Happy at Any Cost. Wonderful conversation, Catherine. Uh, And the new book is just out, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Hsieh. Congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading, Catherine, in um, mid-March 2022 as we try to make sense of an increasingly bizarre world? A Tony Sue world almost.
1: Well, I have to recommend uh, the book Happier Question Mark by Daniel Horowitz, the historian I mentioned earlier. It's just a fabulous take. I think about it all the time on our happiness culture. Um, and then after I got done with the book, I started getting back to some fiction reading. So I'm in the middle of Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads, and I'm really loving that.
0: Another f- philosopher, a rather jaded one of American happiness. Uh, I think we'll have to get that... Um... So is he a sociologist, the author of the book, Happiness?
1: He's a historian at Smith College.
0: Mm, Do you know him?
1: I got to interview him for the book.
0: He was Mm, really helpful. I'll have to interview him for the show. Finally, Catherine, we're asking all our guests this. uh, Catherine Sayer, the author of Happy at Any Cost. Uh, Catherine, who runs the world in March, mid-March 2022? Who's in charge?
1: Okay, well, I think I'll deflect on world events and say in in my little world, um, my dogs are ruling my world because now as we are going back to normal life, I'm feeling guiltier than pre-pandemic levels of leaving them at home. So they're kind of ruling my world.